0: Hello, this is Angelica Yingst, and you're listening to Centered, Grounded Conversations About the Metaphysical. Hello, and welcome to your Tarot, Earth, and Sky Medicine reading for July 2023. I am Angelica Yingst, and I am your cruise director. Please enjoy the retrogrades of Venus and Chiron this month. They're both giving you the finger out of the driver's side window. (laughs) Now I joke, but am I joking? Really? because we're in cancer season it's time to feel all the feels so come on get it out let yourself cry you know honestly and and this is just from my heart I often think of the hard shell of cancer before I think of the gooey insides and that's only because every cancer I've met you know has a pretty tough outer shell they really only show you their feelings their gooey insides Uh, When they trust you and when they do show it to you, I'm just going to give you a word of advice. Hold it sacred. They will be vigilant about watching you and making sure that you are worthy of getting the gift of their vulnerability. And I have seen cancers who will take it, take it, take it, and then they will turn. What looks like on a dime, but really is after years of feeling betrayed by little hints of betrayal. And then you got to watch the fuck out. And I'm not saying this could happen this month, but we are mired in the soup of cancer. And I'm just saying it could happen. Okay, maybe it could. Um, I'm going to tell you a little story. I keep thinking of this phrase, don't cry. um, Because in the late 90s, early 2000s, I was living in a weird apartment in South Philly's Italian section, right at 12th and Tasker. There's an opera cafe across the street, and that's a cafe where all the waiters sing opera while they're serving you, if you didn't know. (laughs) And you could hear them practicing uh, Italian operas in the streets. You know, all the windows were open. Nobody had air condition. Uh, I was back in school after a hiatus. I got married, moved to the desert. And, you know, while I was in the desert, I learned a bunch of stuff about me, but I hadn't quite applied it all yet. I'd come back to Philly to finish up my degree, and I was really beaten down by life. I was really broke. Um, I had a failed marriage. I was living off student loans, working in a vegan cafe as a cook. My parents, you know, had owned their second house by the time I, you know, I was that age, uh, by 24, (laughs) you know, and I kind of heard about it a lot. So I was confused about life. I mean, I had started school at 17, and I was a film major. And I really wanted to get back to my love, my childhood love of writing and, and journalism. And uh, when I went to school, I'd been encouraged to study something different than journalism, um, that the classes were kind of useless for somebody who already knows how to write is what I was told. So I became a religion major and I started taking classes outside of my major for prerequisites, right? Because I was like, all right, I'll just start with prerequisites until I figure it all out. And I took a figure drawing class. And I love that class. Oh my God. I wanted to be in that class a hundred percent of my time. And one of the, you know, the professor kind of grabbed me after class and said, Angie, you know, you should really major in art. You're really, really focused. You're really good at it. And I said, I just have so much going on and I can't imagine starting in a new school. I was in, you know, all the prerequisites, you know, add on whatever. Um, I was already in the honors college. I was taking 16 credits. And she just said, think about it. Maybe you can be a minor. Maybe you should just try it. And art has always been part of my psyche in my life. And that starts at the very early ages where my parents were like, okay, let's just send her to art school. <laughs> so I went to like the you know, Baum Museum in Allentown. I, they had an art school and I, I took classes there. Um, but, you know, during that time I was really healing a significant... Uh, relationship trauma and pain um which i'm not going to go into right now but my apartment was really small it was kind of a studio I, I i just basically took it the first apartment i saw i took it had no closets i didn't know that until i moved in <laughs> so just one afternoon i'm like lying on my bed reading a magazine of artwork like one does and i saw a painting and it was basically abstract i mean it had layers you could tell there was paint under white paint like maybe pinks or something or blue and in very small script at the edge of the painting it just said don't cry and i stared at it for so long and it was like it it took me back to my childhood when you know i remember squeezing my hands because i had gotten hurt and i didn't want my parents to see me cry i didn't want to cry so was just be like don't cry don't cry don't cry so it was like a mantra that i said a lot in my childhood um and one of it was you know when you cried my dad would get really angry he he just hated when kids cried um and so when i saw that painting i just it hit me you know just all this whiteness and and then a don't cry and so i put it up on my fridge um and Many years later, I found a Yoshitomo Nara painting just that just said, don't cry. It's from 2012. And I use that still as my wallpaper on my phone or my computer. And I think it, it resonated because of that wound, the don't cry wound. And that simple phrase, the one my father said so many times and in, in, in his actions, the one I repeated in my head, because I was so damned emotional all the time. Um, it just became part of, my inner dialogue. Uh, don't cry, Angie. Don't cry. Don't cry. <laughs> so this phrase like really was a phrase I, I took, you know, and I, I ended up using it a lot um, in my artwork uh, when I was rebelling against the way grief does its number. Like you can't not cry. Um, and I couldn't suck it up. You know, I, it just came out. And so crying was how I healed and, and how I felt things, crying was my greatest gift. Crying really was the opening of my heart. And so I say this because crying is a gift this month. We're in cancer season. Uh, We're going to be moving to Leo, which is very extroverted, bold, exciting. It, It really doesn't take a ton of time to cry. Honestly, Leo is not a big crier. So, you know, cancer is more inward, more introverted. And we end up moving in this early part of the month with the emotions very close to the surface. And at the end of month, You know, when we're going to have some retrogrades in some areas, it's going to kick us back into a place where we're like, don't cry, suck it up, be a man, grow some ovaries or whatever abusive societal crap you say in your head. We're going to actively have to fight against that voice. So in the beginning of the month, just cry, damn it. Just cry, be dramatic, (laughs) draw a bath, cry into the bath, Uh, write poetry about the, the salt water, you know uh, linger in the melodrama of it all. Okay. It's okay. That's why we have bathtubs. So, um, when I am going to talk about the astrology, I just want you to have that, you know, this is a, a, a time that you're allowed to work with and own grief and crying and weeping and being sad and feeling sorry for yourself and not to the place of wallowing, but just to the place of like, acknowledging that being a human is freaking hard. I literally said this in an AA meeting this morning. (laughs) We're just like, you know, it is so hard to be a human. I mean, we're literally start suffering from the moment we come down the vaginal canal, you know, it it hurts, it's tight, we want to scream. And, you know, it just gets worse from there, you know, and sometimes we get overwhelmed with the amount of suffering we have to do. But in general, you know, it just, it's okay to sometimes take those moments to just cry. So we're not going to start that way in July, actually, because July starts with a Mercury Kazemi in Cancer. So that's when the Mercury, when Mercury and the sun come together in alignment. And that Kazemi is going to be really interesting. You're going to feel really supported with communicating well, because, uh, Mercury rules communication. And so the conjunction is really supported by Jupiter. And so these are really big ideas and a lot of abundance. Jupiter is a wonderfully opportunity-rich place. It's abundance-giving, you know. So we get to experience that. And then we have a lovely full moon on the third, which is in Capricorn. So one of the things about Capricorn's full moons is they tend to be around like sort of the ambitions we have, you know, so work, our hobbies, it, and it kind of inspires us to work on manifestation. Um, And so that lunation is also supported by Jupiter. And of course, because Capricorn is ruled by Saturn, we're going to get that solid foundation and that, you know, structure that we might need for it. Um, So on July 10th, then, uh, Mars enters Virgo. And so that's going to give you extra confidence, too, to stand up for yourself. And then we see Mercury transiting to to Leo on the 11th. These things together, like, I don't know if I would mention one without the other, but you can kind of see, like, you have this wonderful communication beginning of the month, and it sort of starts to roll into Capricorn and these wonderful, like, making shit happen. (laughs) Capricorn's great at earning money and and being ambitious and setting up rules and kind of making stuff kind of come to, you know, it starts things. It is a cardinal sign. So it really gets things rolling and makes things happen. Okay. And then when we have Mars in Virgo and Mercury in Leo, then we know, okay, I can communicate, I can negotiate for myself. I can communicate well. I'm going to be confident. I can stand up for myself. You've got all these great things that really show you that from the beginning of the month until about the 11th, you know, that week in the 11th, you're going to really have an easy time or an easier time working with figuring out work and figuring out career and figuring out what you want to be doing. So if you've been struggling with that, this is really the time to do it. Now, the new moon in cancer on July 17th is where... This is really going to get us into the fields, and this is a time to practice that deep self-care, rejuvenation. You know, one of the things that cancer rules is our is family, including our friends, like the family of origin and the family that we make, our homes. I think new moons are all about, you know, kind of looking at where is it placed, and then where can we have some fresh energy or movement. And so when we're thinking about a new moon in cancer, we can really think about, you know, focusing on the family and our home and, and building memories and building um, self-care practices, really staying present. You know, I really would avoid like old resentments or old conversations. You don't have to go back there. And there is a tendency in ca- cancer to like not let things go and keep going back to that resentment over and over and over again. If there is a person that you have a big resentment with, or something that you haven't been able to let go, I would just say don't hang out with them around the new moon, because this is really about hanging out with people who give you life, who don't have that kind of baggage in a way that's going to um, hold you down. Because this is a self care time; it's time to stay in, lounge around, lay in the sun, uh, make comfort food. You know, all of those things. I mean, those are tend to be winter things, but do this in a summer way. You know, be in the pool. Cancer loves water, so do anything with water, right? And we have a couple of things coming up in Leo season that are gonna kind of give us that feeling of like we don't wanna enter Leo season with baggage because we have two big retrogrades. And I know what you're saying, like, Angie, retrogrades, what are you talking about? I'm talking about the fact that Venus goes retrograde on uh, Saturday, July 22nd. And it's going to be a big day because that's when Leo season starts. Um, And Leo season is all about like extroversion and going out and parties and feeling pretty and sleeping a lot, you know. Um, But on Saturday, July 22nd, when Venus goes retrograde, we're talking about this planet that rules love, abundance, beauty. And those are the areas that are going to be affected during the retrograde, which is going to last from the 22nd of July until September 3rd. So, Really anything with relationships, even finances are ruled a little bit by Venus, you're going to feel real sluggish around. Okay, so just not a time to make big changes to your appearance, not time to have body modifications, uh, not time to kind of think about getting a haircut, you know, nothing like that, you know, so you're just kind of laying low with that stuff. So if you have something planned, that's crucial to you, to your a well-being like a surgery or something don't cancel them based on horoscopes it's that's not what i'm telling you to do just saying like if you can help it you know just wait to get the haircut until after the third of september is that hard no get it on the 20th um so july 23rd which is you know why i keep telling you uh to cry and deal with your shit earlier in the month is because you know when when Venus goes retrograde on the 22nd, then Chiron goes retrograde um, on the 23rd. And Chiron is an interesting part of our astrological chart. Chiron is associated with healing trauma, uh, healing childhood wounds. It is the comet called the Wounded Healer, and it goes retrograde starting July 23rd, and it lasts all the way to December 23rd. So this Chiron... Retrograde time period is a time where we can get stuck in the past looking at healing trauma. Uh, Whether you go to therapy now or feel like, you know, you haven't yet. uh, Chiron retrograde is a time that you should prioritize wellness and emotional well-being and emotional health. Okay, so a lot of times we talk about our physical health. We even talk about emotional health or psychic health. But do we talk about mental health as well, as much It still has a little bit of stigma. And I can tell you that some of us have already been, I know I have, been feeling the instability of my own mental health as we're getting into Chiron retrograde's shadow, beginning shadow period. So, you know, Chiron is one of those uh, weird parts of our astrology chart. It's not quite a planet. I mean, I guess it is considered one now. When it was first discovered, it was classified as an asteroid, Then it went through, like, a couple identity crises. Now it's, I think, considered a minor planet. But, you know, don't quote me on that because things change. So what it does do is it orbits two intensely oppositional planets, the, the planets of Saturn and Uranus. So Saturn's all about the rules. It's very restrictive. It's about restrictions. It's uptight. Whereas Uranus is revolutionary. It also... Kind of has a reputation of liberation and freedom, and so as it orbits these two, it really is looking at how do we, uh, how do we dominate our old dogma? How do we upend the paradigms in which we were living in? Okay, so there there are times where you know you, I I've, I've, I read a lot of memoirs and 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 biographies and books, you know, about CPTSD, which means that I also get into contact with a lot of stories that are about children, about adults who are living with childhood abuse or childhood neglect or things like that. And I'm saying that because there are times when I hear those stories and you realize like when you are raised in a paradigm that is unhealthy, dysfunctional, Um, abusive. We don't know any other paradigm. And so we often need something from the outside to disrupt the paradigm. This is the kind of stuff that happens when Chiron is retrograde, where we happen to catch a glimpse of the outside world and go, oh, wait, all children aren't fed only once a day, which was not my story, believe me. But, um, you know, that kind of thing. So we get to upend our own paradigms, and we get to understand both extremes, both the extreme of Saturn, which wants to be super restrictive, and the est- extreme of the rebellious Uranus, which wants to be totally free, because there is a middle ground here, okay? So, you know, Chiron really is looking at our core wounds and how we can overcome them. Um, and, you know, of course, like, I'm, I've told the story of Chiron many, many times, Chiron is really the archetypal teacher, healer, and wisdom holder. So Chiron was a Greek healer and philosopher who was a um, centaur. And so most centaurs were depicted as very animal, right? Very lustful and wild. But Chiron was like this exception who was modest and civilized and known for his medicinal skills. And so he was thought to be the teacher of all the heroes, the mythological heroes, like Heracles, Achilles, Jason, Asclepius. So he was thought to like, take them, teach them how to fight, teach them about medicine. Um, And according to the myth, Chiron was teaching Heracles about using the blood of the hydra as a poison. Okay. And he would tip it on the arrow and then um, shoot it at his enemy. So the thing about This was Heracles is practicing. He accidentally shoots Chiron and the painful wound could never be cured. And Chiron is immortal. So he continued to work to heal the sick and the injured. And then he would spend time searching for the cure to his own illness, like to his own suffering. And so just because we're helping others doesn't mean we have to be healed or that we can heal ourselves. And, you know, in recovery in AA, you know, one of the things that is said is, you know, in fact, we can't heal ourselves. We can't cure our alcoholism. We cannot keep ourselves sober, you know. So that's the, the myth, you know, is that like, oh, I have to be perfect to do healing work or I have to be completely healed before I'm healing others. And so Chiron comes in basically as the archetypal wounded healer, even though he got the wound He can still heal others. He may not be able to heal his wound. And so this is really a point of shame and contention for many healers in our community of, you know, energy healers and and metaphysicians that, you know, my wound, your wound, each of us has a wound that doesn't heal, whether it's physical, chronic, uh, a wound of not fitting in, a wound of standing out, a wound of being ignored or neglected or having your heart broken or compromising your values. We kind of look at that wound and we ask, you know, Chiron basically, you know, how do I continue to heal with this wound? How do I soothe this wound? How do I make it a scar rather than an open weeping wound where I'm bleeding on other people? And so once we become aware of the wound, then we don't bleed on other people. And that's really what Chiron does, right? It shows us where the wound is. It shows us how to live with the wound, but it doesn't promise that we're going to heal the wound. And so it feels very sacrilegious to talk about having a wound that may not heal. And some of us have wounds from childhood that'll never heal. We're never going to be able to give you back your childhood. You're never going to be able to give you back the trauma of being, you know, after being at war, for example. But, you know, we can learn to live with it. You know, I'm never going to get over my daughter dying. I'm always going to feel like that was unfair. And, and, you know, it's always going to be a wound. But I have learned to use her as a guide, right? So, you know, particularly in circles where every illness is said to have an emotional cause, a la Louise Hay, who can freaking kiss my grits, by the way, um, we have to kind of move against this, you know, and so how do you know what your wound is? Well, do you have an event in your life where you're injured, hurt, grief-stricken, diagnosed and you just knew I'm never going to be the same after, you know, after this moment, like this was the the, the moment. The uh, the zero horizon, right? <laughs> like that zero point horizon that was called uh, you know, it's just a new normal or some people call it like the before and after moment. I've had a couple of those in my life to be frank. And honestly, Sometimes my life is so full of grief and loss and suffering, it kind of shocks me. You know, like, I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't believe all I've been through. You know, it's like three different lifetimes. But it isn't. It's one. It's one lifetime. I'm just like an ordinary person next door. And all of us are, right? We're all just people. And suffering is part of our humanness. Okay, so one of the things we have to remember is like, life is suffering, you know, it's hard to be a human. Okay. So we can never take away our childhood abuse, but we can change our feelings about it. If we've had shame, if we've held shame and, and, and pain, we can let go of the shame. We can realize we're a victim. We can see ourselves as a pat as part of a pattern of abuse. That doesn't mean that it was okay that that happened, but that we have like that childlike understanding changes to an adult understanding. But when we're wounded, we tend to stay at that same age, right? So, you know, this is what Chiron does. So Chiron begins retrograding in Aries, and that gives us chance to heal old wounds, to find the wisdom, to try to access the adult, you know. But with the retrograde, you know, it keeps us there. It keeps us looking at it, even when we want to turn away, even when we're going to get on TikTok and we want to, you know, eat a bunch of ice cream or drink ourselves into oblivion or smoke a bunch of weed. You know, it's that's the point. Like, we... Get to. We have the gift of being able to look at the past in Chiron retrograde. But remember that, you know, our instinct is to sedate that part of us, to numb it. So many of us, not all of us, some of us aren't born with an addictive <laughs> bone in our body. But those of us who are, you know, recovering addicts or alcoholics, you know, we tend to be like, well, I don't know. I could still use some ice cream right now, you know, or I could still use scrolling on the Internet. Um, and that's not a bad thing. You know, we just we have to know why we're using something. Um, and I like to say, you know, there's a mindfulness to it or a mindlessness to it when we're mindful about why we're scrolling TikTok or why we are indulging in, you know, over drinking or overeating or whatever, you know, cool and then do it. You know, tonight I'm really bummed. I'm going to just have some ice cream, watch a good Netflix doc and, and go to sleep early. You know, we can sometimes know, like, I'm trying to avoid that deep feeling. It's too much right now, you know, but then we go back to it. We're not going to do that forever. And that's the point. So combined with Venus retrograde, this Chiron retrograde is going to be a really good time to find closure in past relationships, especially painful ones. One's that have slashed our confidence, ones in which we were injured. Okay. So it isn't a time to have the hard conversation though, but we can start to do our work around it and look at our side of the street, right? We're not worrying about anybody else's streets, not anybody else's garbage cans out on the the curb. What we're looking for is cleaning up our, our yard, our side of the street. So Every aspect or, of a planet or astrological situation is there for a reason, okay? It's not like, it's like, oh no, we have a retrograde, can't do anything. No, retrogrades are there for us to do the internal work. But because we're so triggered at those times, because we can sometimes get snagged up in spiritual confusion or find some hickable places, they can be difficult. Because we do want to blame other people. You know, retrogrades get us, you know, we're kind of in a loop right? It's it's an illusion that the planet's moving backwards. It's more like at a standstill from our point of view. And so we can get stuck in this storytelling. So that's why feeling the feeling is important. We're going to have to learn how to self-soothe during retrogrades. And the Venus retrograde with Chiron retrograde together is a perfect storm, you know? So just know that we can get triggered, um, especially around our unhealed wounds around relationships or abandonment or fear or trust or you know, any of those things. So Chiron Retrograde is a good time for therapy. It's a good time for extra support. It's a good time to be with friends who don't trigger you. Um, just use Chiron Retrograde as a reminder to prioritize wellness, self-care, your emotional and mental well-being for the rest of 2023, okay? And, you know, the last thing that happens in July, then, is Mercury enters its home sign of Virgo on the 28th, which is really a great time to then have some communication with people. You know, this is a good time. If you need to talk about stuff and it can't wait till after uh, Venus retrograde, then pick Friday, July 28th, okay? Um, Things just become easier. So just to recap, here are your dates. Uh, We have a full moon in Capricorn on July 3rd. Mars enters Virgo July 10th. Mercury enters Leo July 11th. A new moon in Can- in capricorn in cancer sorry is july 17th venus goes retrograde in leo on the 22nd and leo season begins on july 22nd and then Chiron goes retrograde on july 23rd and mercury enters virgo on the 29th so you know how this works you know i do the sky reading or the astrology and then i kind of think about some earth medicine and what i do is i actually pick cards okay um, just to keep it really simple, so we have a wonderful card for this month. It's, it's the nine of cups. So if you've taken my tarot class, you know this is the called the wish fulfillment card. While others call it the wish fulfillment curse, I call it the wish fulfillment card. Uh, it is what it is. Um, basically, this is the card that says, "What do you want? I'm your genie. You know, I I will answer. I will give you whatever you want." just ask for it. But like the genie, there's always a twist, okay? There's always a little bit of trickster energy in in getting asking for something. So, um you know, I kind of say like it's like calling postmates for your dreams, but what do you really want? I mean, really really want. Is it a thing, a person, a job, a car, a sweater, is it a feeling or a sense of well-being or contentment or peace? Or healing. Every triumph card has a little bit of challenge, and every challenge card has a little bit of triumph. And in this one, it's about aligning your wishes and intentions for the thing that is your highest good. So it's kind of like King Midas wishing for everything he touched to turn to gold. You know, you quickly die from that. Okay. No food. You can't eat food. The second it touches your lips, it turns into gold. You can't eat. You know, you can't have partnerships. You can't have intimacy. So with wishes, there's always a catch and it always catches our greed and wounding, okay? And that makes us ignore the wish that we want, okay? So the card, believe it or not, is really not um, agreed upon. You know, I, I've always been taught that it's like, oh, it's like such a positive card where we get it. It's a blessing, blah, 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 blah. But some people see this guy as smug, self-satisfied, arrogant, a person primarily concerned with pleasure, his pleasure. And ladies, we all know a dude like that, right? <laughs> Marcia Messino, the tarotist, calls this card the Wine, Women, and Song card, which I love. But it really is the card that brings good health, wealth, and enjoyment. Um, and it is a card that we need to align with our greater happiness, okay? So these beautiful cards of happiness and contentment and wishes and and abundance and manifestation are really about like, Hey, let's look deeper. Like what is, what is it that I'm really asking for? Maybe it's like, Hey, I want more money in the bank. Yeah. Okay. Like, how do you want more money in the bank? Why do you want more money in the bank? Maybe it's because you just don't want to worry about paying your bills. Maybe it's just that you don't want to have that constant struggle, or maybe you want to work less, or maybe you know, there are many ways to get that wish fulfilled without just being like, I want the cash. So thinking about what is the thing under the thing under the thing is important when you get, you know, into a place of setting goals or uh, doing manifestation work or wish work or whatever you want to say. Um, you know, the nine of cups is a nine and nine is the number of attainment. And it comes after the eight of cups and the eight of cups is leaving a comfortable situation, like a financially abundant situation for emotional balance. Okay. And so when we look at wounding, at least with, you know, Chiron, we have traumas and wounds and all those things. We're also remembering, Hey, you know, this comes after we've left a financially abundant situation for emotional balance. And so what he's really doing is looking for a lost cup in the eights. So in the nines, he's found it. So, you know, I think it's important to remember that, you know, when we are going into nine, we have to think about what we've left, what have we moved away from, and what we need to bring in to feel complete, okay? So sometimes, you know, the nine is like the wish fulfillment is, hey, I just want to be happy. You know, I just want to be content with what I have, you know, and that's the thing about manifestation work. There's so much magical thinking and so much of this is in the head, but it also leads us down a path that can be like all about terminal uniqueness, thinking you're special and you're controlling things. And the opposite end of that is that if you're not manifesting what you want, you're not good enough. Okay. And they're both really dangerous roads to walk down. So, you know, we're thinking about, okay, I'm coming into July having lost or looked for some sort of something to f- fulfill the emotional imbalance I'm feeling, okay? And we're going to get it, but how are we going to get it and what is it, okay? And also remembering that if someone isn't, see, isn't there yet, they're not... They haven't felt complete with that, that they're not missing something in their life, you know, that they're simply, you know, walking that road. And it's a positive card. It really is. It's a it's a card of attainment. But it is hard won as well. You have to let go of something to call something in. So what are you willing to let go of to call in emotional balance, to call in connection, to call in intimacy, Okay, because that's really what's important, the lasting thing, not the women, wine, and song. Okay, you've got this. We have earth medicine to support us, and the one that we got this month for our plant medicine is pretty much the unsung hero of the witch's garden. It's dandelion. So you can go like, yeah, I got a lot of dandelion. (laughs) But, like, dandelion is a survivor, man. Found in nearly every corner of the world, dandelion has been used for thousands and thousands of years by humans. We label it now as a weed, but that's really just a term of abuse, and it's a matter of perspective. So, you know, I I just think weed is such a useless word when you're talking about plant medicine, because literally the best plant medicine are weeds. You know, they, they last. Dandelion is one of the most versatile and humble, healers that we have. It is that every single part of the dandelion can be used from the root to the flower. And it has been. So, you know, if you're going to collect dandelions out of your yard, don't spray, like just don't use weed killer or whatever you use. I mean, just you can't eat the leaves. It's so delicate. All of your plants are you know, it's, it's just obvious, obvious. It's not like you're going to get it out of the plant and the root and all of those things. Okay. But let's talk about it. Leaves, you can eat raw, fi- fried, steamed, blanched. Flowers, raw, fried, they're used to make wine. Roots can be used, dried, ground, roasted. They make an excellent coffee substitute, which I use when I'm off coffee, which I'm not right now. So I'm still drinking coffee. Uh, it's an excellent stimulant to the digestive system, to urinary organs. It can make a tincture from the tops or the roots. All parts of the plant contain this bitter milky juice, which you probably noticed if you've ever pulled, uh, like cut a, a dandelion or be given a dandelion, you have that little milky stuff that's called latex. And that's the part that has a lot of the medicinal properties. When it's combined with citrus, the flowers are used to make dandelion wine. It's also one of the traditional ingredients in root beer if you didn't know that, these are the vitamins it's abundant in. A, C, K. It's a good source of calcium, potassium, iron, manganese. And magically, we know that dandelion has so many cool little magical superstitions like blowing the dandelion puff, you know, the seeds carrying a wish for you or uh, doing a dandelion bloom under your chin. And if it's yellow, it means you'll be rich one day. Um, And those legends, like they go all the way back to medieval times. Um, So, you know, in Maud Greaves, A Modern Herbal, you can use dandelion for curing warts, for digestion, you can use it for liver issues, you can use it for teas, um, for psychic abilities. Scott Cunningham says that you can use it for divination and prophetic dreaming. And I found that in a number of sources that uh, dandelion is used for some of that um, psychic work. Um So, in some magical belief systems, dandelion is associated with growth and transformation because the dandelion flowers turn into hundreds of seeds waiting to travel around the world. Um, and so there is a connection there, magically with moving on. If you've got a bad habit to get rid of, um, you can associate it with the dandelion puff and then blow it away from you. Um, you can say your prayers into it and let the prayers be carried by the wind um, with the dandelion puff. Um, because they're so resilient, they represent strength and our ability to overcome adversity. And in some magical traditions, they're associated with the goddess Aphrodite because of her connection to bees. Um, And in others, the plant is connected with the underworld and the association with the goddess Hecate. So if you've got dandelions popping up everywhere and you don't know what to do with them, you can gather the dandelion roots um, and, and use all parts of it. So first of all, Weeding dandelions uh, can be difficult. They have long, tenacious roots. So you have to get like there's almost I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it's like a long um, tool with like a prong at the end. That's really for for picking dandelions. So um, part of their medicine is that they're tenacious, you know, and they're strong and they're resilient. So, um, you know, the ability to, to persevere comes with dandelions. So To make dandelion root tea, you just basically gather some of the dandelion roots. So you either use a small shovel to slice the dirt around the root and then pull it out and you loosen the soil before trying to pull it out of the earth. And then, you know, sometimes if it's a little wet, it's easier. Like we had a really dry spell. It was really hard to dig into the earth. So, you know, now that we've had some rain, it would be easier. So um, if you're going to use it for uh juice or for tea or whatever. Uh, you trim the leaves off the root. And of course you can use the leaves. You can use them for steaming. They they can be used like greens like kale or um collards or whatever. But um or you can use them in just a salad. Um, they're a little bitter because of that latex. Um, that just makes it a little bitter. But uh some people love it. Um, I struggle with eating dandelion roots. Like I I struggle. I sometimes will juice them and that I will mix with you know, more sweet juices that will kind of cut the bitterness. But remember to clean the roots really, really well. It's going to be super dirty, obviously, full of soil. So I put them in strainers, remove all the dirt and soil, pick off the fibrous stringy bits, rinse them again, and then I roast the roots. So I put them in a roasting pan or on a cookie sheet at like 355 for 40 minutes. If you want to quicker, you can put it in a cast iron skillet on medium heat and just roast them until they turn dark brown and then get your tea kettle going. Um, and I use like smoky quartz, gem water, um, because they, it connects with like grounding and roots. Um, so I will pour it over some of the roots. Sometimes I use cinnamon stick or cardamom pod. A lot of times I just use dandelion root and it tastes a little like coffee. So you can put them in a tea strainer, um, you can put them in a treat teapot and then just strain it as you're pouring it out. It's up to you really. Um, and, uh, I just love it. You can also just buy dandel roasted dandelion root. It makes an amazing tea. Uh, it's great. Like with any kind of coffee, like if you like coffee, you'll like it. Um, and it really, it doesn't taste like coffee, but it has a similar kind of earthy, uh, feeling to it. So when, when I, work with, um, my shamanic approaches class at Hibiscus boon I offered like, um, a recipe for, um, roasted dandelion root tea. And a lot of people tried it for the first time and they really loved it, you know, and I think it, it is such a good one. Um, for the stone medicine, it was really interesting. Just randomly we had three blue stones come up, um, which really are activating the psychic channel and the throat chakra. So the first one is turquoise. It's probably, one of the oldest stones in man's history. We see it um, as a talisman for shaman and kings and warriors. It's really a stone of protection, even though it's blue. And I know you're going like, Angie, I thought protective stones were black. Well, turquoise is one of those ones that is very protective, which is why it was used so often and why we see it a lot um, all over the place. The name... Turquoise is actually derived from the French uh, pierre turquoise, uh, meaning the Turkish stone. So that's because the trade routes that brought turquoise to Europe from the mines of Central Asia were brought through Turkey. And the Venetian merchants often purchased the stones in Turkish bazaars. So uh, for thousands of years, turquoise has spanned all cultures. And it is really prized as a symbol of wisdom and nobility and immortality. So we see it in ancient Egypt, the Persians, the Chinese, the Aztecs, and the Incans, and Native North Americans. It was used as adornment for luck and power and protection. So we have turquoise beads that date back to 5000 BCE um, that have been found in Iraq, and the Egyptians were mining the stones in the Sinai at 3200 BCE. So the death's the death mask of Tutankhamen, which was King Tut, was studded with turquoise, as are the mosaic masks that were dedicated to the gods um, and the inlaid skulls for uh, Montezuma, the last ruler of the Aztecs. So for nearly a thousand years, Native Americans have been mining and fashioned turquoise, using it to guard burial sites, and their gems have been found from Argentina to New Mexico. So Indian uh, Native American priests wore it in ceremony to call in great spirit of the sky. It's considered sacred to the Navajo and it is known as the bringer of rain. So it's also used as the traveler's companion given to those embarking on a long journey. Um, And so it was used for protection in that way as well. So um, many like actually believe that turquoise will change color uh, depending on who's wearing it. um, And that it will kind of, uh, get lighter, um, if you're not doing well, um, like you're ill or something like that. And then it'll darken when it's given to someone healthy. Um, so it was, um, also used for protection against any fall. So that was another like connection to traveling. Um, and so turquoise now, you know, we kind of use it for protection. We use it for empowerment. We use it for luck and ambition and creativity it's also used for uh, communication it's used for psychic work it's used for psychic protection it's used for um honoring ourselves as a tool of the divine it's wonderful like physically for lung disorders and allergies and uh, bronchial attacks and asthma um so it also, you know, helps with speech disorders as well um, because of the association with the throat. Um, it's good for peace, um, for serenity, for mood in general, for vitality. Um, so we use it a lot, though, for dispelling negative energy. It's great as like a double, it does double duty in that way, uh, especially when you're trying to speak your truth and you're kind of afraid to do it or you're saying it to someone who um Can be a tacky. You can kind of use it to both speak your truth and dispel any negative energy and um, you know protect the protect the throat. Um, And you know, it is really about finding truth and wholeness as well and communicating communicating that. So, um, you know, turquoise kind of is a is a wonderful stone. It's copper-derived mineral. And so a lot of turquoise comes in, you know, that blue that we sort of associate it with in, this, in the Southwest, but it also can be green, more like, think of like how oxidation, what that does to a penny, how it sort of turns a little more green. That's why the colors of turqu- of copper-derived minerals change, and, and they're different. So blue or turquoise really come from uh, Arizona being one of those places Um, It's one of the more sought-after colors when it's that super robin egg blue. Um, uh, The more sought-after turquoises have the least amount of green in them. Um, So, you know, we know that Arizona turquoise tends to be a little lighter and more robin egg blue, whereas the greener turquoise will be found in, like, Nevada, for example, or be found in um, Asia. And due to, like, mines being depleted authentic turquoise is, is a lot rarer a lot harder to find and it makes it incredibly expensive so there's a lot of fakes out there and a lot of people say like how do you know when it's fake well it just it just takes time like sometimes they reconstitute it meaning they put a little bit of turquoise in um to like resin and make it so you can poke a hole in it by heating a a needle or something like that um of course, like if you do that, um, you're going to have a hole in your turquoise. Um, sometimes they're how light, um, sometimes it's even hard to tell whether it's like chrysocola or shatakai or turquoise. Um, and someone, someone that I know says, you know, that turquoise is harder and not bony, chalky, sticky to the tongue. Um, so just like lick it, if you're confused, uh, uh, Will be a little more bony, chalky, or sticky. Okay. Um, so the next stone is blue lace agate. Blue lace agate is a variety of banded chalcedony, um, which is a mineral of the quartz family. And so chalcedony is like that, it's basically both a type of crystal um, and it's an umbrella term for all crystals that are this microcrystalline quartz. Um, so you have jasper agates and chalcedonies agates are banded. So they're banded um, and that makes them an agate. Otherwise it would be a blue chalcedony. Same mineral. You're going to get a lot of the same uh, properties, a lot of the same like coloration, but the blue lace agate has a a predominantly light blue color and it's striped with either brighter blues, white, sometimes even brown. Um, Sometimes it has like a druzy on it. So little Crystal points. So the silicate is like really layered in appearance and it has almost a circular design. So it kind of looks like flowing water. And blue lace agate is not exactly a stone of protection. It has a calming energy. It really uh, raises the vibration, elevates the consciousness, um, but it's not exactly protective. It is the stone of communication. It's really great for working with the throat. It provides clarity of thought, unwavering intent uh, in in what matters most. Okay, so opens and clears the throat chakra. It is called the Stone of the Diplomat because it assists in communicating um, difficult ideas. It's great for communication with guides and angels. It's calming. It's centering. It's easy to find. Um, And so it's great for introverts uh, helping them speak their truth without compromising their values. It also helps us when we are um, identifying like negative speech patterns or uh, wanting to keep the dialogue more positive. For example, it's really great. I use it a lot for, for clear thinking and clear speaking. The clarity part is, is important. So um, it's been used again for many centuries. Um, it was discovered among artifacts with the Neolithic people, so it's been going back to Babylon. Um, and so we really see Blue Lace Agate as one of those go tos for the throat. And we use it a lot in Crystal Healing for um, opening the throat, helping someone speak their truth, um, also speaking in public. You know, it, it does all that. It's very calming. And soothing and physically it works with like swollen glands aching throats can help with thyroid problems it can help with um fevers and things like that it's very cooling so if you you know are, are having some like system-wide inflammation blue lace agate's it's very good for cooling that it's good for tension headaches it's good for high blood pressure um it's really good for fevers like i said Um, And so it is a great ally. It's one that is like a go, you must have it in your crystal healing uh, first aid kit. Um, Now the third stone is lapis lazuli. Um, Lapis is really highly regarded because of its color. It's used, it has been traditionally used as the blue in ultramarine uh, paints, like the color ultramarine. Um, It comes from the Latin lapis, which means stone and the Persian isward which means blue and so is this rock that's actually formed by multiple minerals so it's not traditionally considered a crystal um it's a composite you know um but the the minerals that are found in it are lazulite uh lazulite sorry uh sodalite calcite pyrite so you can see the pyrite flecks in in good uh lapis lower grade lapis will have more of the calcite the white than the gold Um, and so, you know, it was also really highly prized in Egypt, um, and obtained from some of the oldest mines in the world. And we see that in the 4,000 BCE. Um, so the sarcophagus of King Tut was inlaid with lapis as were other things. So it was used in making scarabs and pendants and jewelry and, and powder for dyes and eyeshadows and medicinal elixirs. Um, this, blue was really important in the Middle East, you know, thinking of like the desert expanse and all that desert color. Um, The blue was like such a bright color. Um, So it was used a lot for dyes for the uh, royalty or for the priests. Um, So, you know, in pre-Columbian America and in ancient Persia, it was really um, a go-to for protection. Um, And so... There's so much I can say about lapis. Um, Lapis is known as a stone that's activating the third eye. It's activating the throat. Um, It has pyrite and calcite in it, and it is great for thought, memory, clarity, learning. It's a stone of self-knowledge. It's a stone of meditation. This is a stone for accessing past life and karmic information, as well as Akashic records. So it's traditionally been used for third eye, dream work, all that kind of stuff. It's also excellent for journalists, writers, psychologists. It stimulates wisdom and good judgment. Um, It aids with uh, analysis for um, historians or for lawyers or for inventors or writers. Um, It really is like that crystal that we go to for higher mind and intellectual ability. It is a crown chakra and third eye chakra stone. Because it's a stone of truth, lapis is often more worn or used when you are doing that work, you know, of like looking at the self. So, um, you can really use it during this time, uh, when we're looking at Chiron, uh, retrograde and, you know, some of the other medicine that, that we're working with. Um, lapis is really good for temperamental teenagers or children with, um, autism or attention deficit disorder. Uh, lapis activates, um, dreams and um i think you know the 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 hardest part of lapis right now is that lapis is coming from afghanistan that's the most prized lapis and so in spite of it being one of the poorest countries in the earth geologists value afghanistan's mines at approximately 1 trillion dollars just because of their lapis and so because it is now considered a conflict mineral or a mineral with blood on its proverbial hands um, and Taliban control Afghanistan's cherished lapis lazuli mines. um, We really have to watch like where we're buying lapis. And um, there's a lot of teachers and crystal people who basically say like, I don't think you should be buying any um, lapis because it goes right into the pockets of the Taliban and it goes right into the pockets of um the corrupt government you know um so it's not new i mean honestly this has been going on since 2016 and before and my teacher hibiscus moon has been blogging about it since that time um I, when i worked there we had to change our curriculum like what we what we asked people to use cuz we used to ask them to use lapis in a couple Layouts, and now you know we had to change it at the end. Uh, just basically saying, like, no more lapis, don't buy it, even if it's old stock, because it it does create a void and a demand in the supply system. So, the shop owner will buy a new piece of lapis. Oh, lapis is really popular, I'm gonna go get some more. So, you can use sodalite as an alternative to lapis, and a lot of people can't tell the difference between lapis and sodalite. So, you know, use sodalite or Lazulite if you can get it that's not Afghanistan, Not from Afghanistan. And just know, like, if you have lapis already, like, it doesn't make sense to get rid of it. Like, I have a bunch of pieces of lapis that I've had for a very long time, and I'm going to just keep, keep it and keep using it, you know, because I already have it. So, um, yeah, so just use it if you have it or use sodalite or another blue stone um, as a replacement. Okay, now for the animal of the month. So I had a really interesting experience pulling the animal of the month uh, because I just, you know, I have all my decks that I usually use kind of out because I I do a lot of readings. Um, And I just grabbed the deck. And I was using Susan Seddon Belay's deck, like it's all her paintings. And there's a brief write-up on the back by someone else. I'm going to look so I don't. uh, No, it doesn't say who they're from. Who wrote them? Who knows? Um, oh, text by John Nagieki. Na- Nagieki. Um, anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, there's no, like, card back, okay? The back is, like, the writing about the animal, and the front is the painting. So I always close my eyes when I shuffle this deck. So I closed it, and I just shuffled, shuffled, shuffled till I had a jumper, which honestly was pretty soon into to shuffling. And turns out I grabbed a goddess deck because they look very similar when they're not in their boxes. And so the card that came up was Isis Osiris. And the gorgeous image on the front was like grieving Isis holding Osiris. And, you know, because we're in our fields right now in Cancer, I felt like we really I really had to mention this. So in ancient Egypt, Isis was among the oldest of the goddesses. And she's the mother goddess, the giver of life. She's also considered a lunar goddess who gives birth to the sun. And she is the goddess of medicine and wisdom. And so Osiris is her brother and her husband. So when Osiris was murdered by her brother Set, Isis searched for and found Osiris, revived him and conceived their son Horus. Okay. And then Set again killed Osiris and scattered his body, you know, into 14 pieces like all over the world. And so Isis hunted down every piece except for the penis, which he couldn't find. And in order, she gave each piece a proper burial. And so she becomes the goddess for burial and, and death rites. And Isis is a universal goddess, meaning she represents all aspects of womanness from uh, maiden mother and crone. So her cults in the Mediterranean really transcended Egypt, and Isis became a goddess cult in and of herself because she overcame death itself, you know. But she grieves. So her tears, the ones that fell when Osiris um, died, uh, caused the Nile River to flood. And so the festivities around the flooding of the Nile each year were originally named the Night of the Teardrop. And they're in remembrance of the extent of Isis' lamentation on the death of Osiris. So her tears were so plentiful, they caused the Nile to flood. And so now that's celebrated every year, even by Egyptian Uh, Muslims, and it's called the Night of the Drop. And so Isis in many new age and spiritual circles is seen as a spirit guide or an ascended master as the one for rebirth and reincarnation. And so as such, she is a guide for understanding one's own past lives. And that came up, and I felt like it was maybe an important part of Chiron's healing is looking at early parts of our life or looking at times where we felt like we died in some way, you know, Um, So Isis' role in afterlife belief is based on that myth of Osiris. Um, She's said to restore the souls of deceased humans to wholeness. So she would do that for us. She also acts as a mother to the deceased, and she provides protection and nourishment. Um, As I thought about Isis and her connection to our own lives and cycles uh, motherhood and grief. I thought about her beautiful like art disp- depictions. She's always shown in blue with wings of a kestrel or kite. And as an aside, you know, so many of her images, the images of Isis and her son Horus, and then her mourning Osiris, um, became part of the art iconography of the Virgin Mary. And so you see some of these Isis pictures, in the different cults in the Mediterranean that followed her, um, they became like Marian cults or cults of the Virgin Mary um, that, like, kind of changed Osiris to Jesus and Mary, you no, know, Isis to Mary. And a lot of the Isis cults were very sexual based, sexually based, whereas that's like the opposite of Mary. But in the same token, it's really interesting when you start looking at the iconography of Isis, you'll see a lot of similar postures as the Virgin Mary. Um, and that's partially, you know, that's, that's by design because they were trying to bring those, uh, who believed in the different small religions, like the ISIS followers and, you know, other followers of the Hellenistic pantheon. Um, they would kind of like try to bring them in. So they would make that story sound more hero focused or more like ISIS. Like, oh, see, you know, Mary is like ISIS. Mary is ISIS, you know. It would like kind of be like, oh, it's kind of a similar story. No, it really is the same thing. You know? So um, they could get more Christians, you know. So going back to the wings of ISIS, though, when I first saw ISIS with wings, I immediately wanted to know what bird they were representing. Um, for some reason, I, I had an idea of what it was, and it wasn't what I thought. I mean, it's a black kite. And the reason is because black kites have a cry that sounds very similar to a woman screaming or crying. Um, And that sounded to ancient Egyptians like the wailing, lamenting women uh, who grieve, you know. So um, it may have also been that the kites scavenging um, was sort of like Isis scavenging for her own husband's body. Um, So whatever, you know, Isis's wings are uh, the means by which she renews life into Osiris. And they are also part of her protective element. So I'm saying that because, um, you know, I think she, she might show up in our journey this month um, because while we're not working with kite and we're not working with Kestrel, um, we are going to work with some of the ideas that ISIS carries forth. Um, So her protection is, is going to be important, but uh, part of her medicine is um, fortune telling. It's, Psychic work, its spirituality, and its past life work, and we're going to work with the past life idea in our journey this month. But we're going to be working with a different animal guide. We actually, I actually pulled heron um, when I actually got the animal deck. <laughs> um, so great blue heron is um, an interesting guide. We've worked with uh, great blue heron in in twenty twenty one, and again we're going to work with heron um, to go into the upper world now. In ancient Egypt, heron is actually one of the first transformers of the soul after death. It's seen in the fields when the Nile begins to flood, so it's associated with renewed life and fertility. Um, Herons are in a group of birds called waders, and they're birds of the marshlands and shallow waters. So they're a member of the stork family, um, but they're different than, you know, there's storks, there's herons, there's egrets, you know. Um, these large birds are really distinctive in appearance because of their blue feathers, which range from like a slate gray to a deep blue. And they have long, thin legs and long necks and sharp bills. And those who work with great blue heron can use those features to their benefit. So legs can help one ground and explore the earth. And they really balance beautifully. They have an ability to progress and evolve. And so the legs represent the deep emotions we wade into and on our journey. Uh, Herons have a strong presence, not only in Egyptian mythology, but also the Aztec. So they're associated with the god uh, Huitzilopochtli. (laughs) I hope I pronounced that right. Uh, I think I put the accent on the wrong place, but it was considered, you know, the incarnation of the sun. And the shamanic writer Wolf's Moon notes that in many... Native American practices, Heron deals with aspects of life after death and connects us to the place that our souls journey to after our physical body dies. So in our this month's journey, which you get if you're part of my membership group, um, you know, we kind of work with one animal the mo- for the month and we kind of talk about the medicine and I take you on a guided journey with that animal. Um, so we'll be traveling to the upper world to meet with Isis we're going to talk about our past lives and meet with our ancestral guides for messages on why we're heal- here, what we need to heal, um, some of that medicine of Chiron. You know, what is, what is it about me that I'm going to always have to deal with which wound and why? Um, so, you know, I, I thank you all for all your messages and support. I know it's um, confusing to some people. I said, like, oh, I might not be seeing clients for a while. And that's true. I am taking a break from seeing one-on-one clients. I'm a little burnt out. I can't write books. I can't make classes if I don't have the time to do it. So I'm taking that time right now. That doesn't mean I'm never going to do that again. Um, but it's going to shift and change. So, um, yes, I've gotten a lot of emails saying, oh, but I wanted a session. I'm, I'm not making exceptions right now. And I just hope that you can understand. Um, but there are so many great healers out there and I know you'll find someone, um, until I'm back on, back on the chain gang. So, Thank you all for your messages and for your love and um, supporting my journey with my own mental health. Um, I appreciate it. So if this podcast resonates with you, please pass it along and hope hopefully it brings some healing to your world and someone else's. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Centered with me, Angie Yankst. If you'd like to send me a question or comment about this show or any shows, You can send them to angie at themoonandstone.com.